Welcome to the Cloudy Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist with Red Hat. In this podcast, we cover what's new and exciting in the world of computing with a rotating panel of co-hosts and other industry experts. If this is your first time here, thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist with Red Hat, here with another episode of the Cloudy Chat podcast at the Open Source Leadership Summit with Fenton Ryan of the analyst firm Redmonk, which if you don't follow, you absolutely should be following. Welcome, Fenton. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. We're going to talk about serverless today. Fenton, uh, can you maybe do a level set here and tell people what at least your definition of serverless is. So serverless to, to, um, to us is essentially a programming model which allows you to deal with event-driven architectures and event-driven applications. So by that, what we actually mean is there's an awful lot of small events that are generating things and it gives you an ability to, to deal with each thing individually in terms of like very small functions. The second part of it is that it's an abstraction layer. Um, essentially, it abstracts away the underlying infrastructure from people and they can focus just exclusively on developing the business logic that they need rather than having to think about like how do I scale out architectures, etc. They're the kind of the two major pieces that it means to us. Since we're at the Open Source Leadership Summit, it might be worth talking about what's going on with serverless in the open source world. Probably Amazon Web Services Lambda is the thing that's best known for serverless. There are event-driven or functions as a service or whatever term that you want to use. There are other cloud providers coming in as well. But there's also a lot of action in the open source space. There is. There's a huge amount of action. I think it's it's actually worth dividing it into two separate areas. So you've got frameworks and platforms. And I think we'll kind of touch on the, the platform stuff first, just to kind of explain some of the some of the things that were emerging there and then, then talk a bit more about the frameworks, which is what most people will actually encounter. On the platform there, we're seeing a kind of a Cambrian explosion of different implementations of serverless at the moment that will run kind of on-premises, etc. But the kind of unifying factor that we're seeing with a lot of them is that they're actually all kind of coalescing and running on top of Kubernetes, which is quite an interesting an, in- an interesting shift versus where we were even a year ago. Um, among those kind of things, we see projects like Kubeless, we see things like OpenWhisk, um, we see there's one from our called Functions, there's um, a project called OpenFaz, there's something called Project Rift, there's, there's like tons of them. There's, there's probably 13 or 14 different ones that you can look at at the moment. And of those, they're, like, they're all still relatively early stage. Um, the most mature of them is probably Apache's OpenWhisk, um, which is kind of like Red Hat are involved in it, IBM are involved in it, a few other companies, and there's kind of a lot, a lot of momentum around that. After that, then, it's kind of a little bit of a step back in terms of maturity, but things are all moving very, very fast. That's kind of the platform side. On the framework side, there's a couple of different trends that are interesting there, and this ties back to the AWS part of the world as well. So we've got a thing called a serverless framework, which we actually heard about a bit this morning here at, at the conference, um, which essentially provides you two things. One, it, it takes away 
all of the complexities in terms of setting up and using serverless. Um, so it gives a set of best practices and relatively opinionated about how it sets things up and then lets you get on with actually developing the application. It's quite free around that. The other side of that is that we see a whole bunch of other frameworks, like things like this one called Apex, one called Sparta, um, there's Ripple and various other things. And all, all, of, these, all of these frameworks are, are basically ways of deploying applications into Lambda generally focused around one specific language. There's quite a lot of things that we see around Python emerging, but a lot of stuff around Go. Um, one of the more widely used ones in the JavaScript landscape is a thing called Claudia.js. But basically, they all fill the same kind of function. They give you a programming model, um, and they try to abstract away some of the, the heavy lifting that you need to do underneath it to, to use, the serverless, use the serverless architectures. But they're all pretty much focused on Amazon, though. You mentioned Kubernetes, and one of the interesting things about Kubernetes is it does seem to be becoming this center of gravity for so many things. Uh, we also saw the scarily big and varied cloud-native computing landscape, and that in many ways represents this sort of whole ecosystem that, uh, you know, certainly from, from the Kubernetes developers like looks like this coal, this ecosystem being developing around Kubernetes. Some of the other projects might have a slightly different perspective than that. But that sort of raises an interesting question around serverless to the point that you mentioned. Kubernetes, after all, is thought of as a container orchestration layer. So what does that say for the intersection of serverless and containers? That's a, it's a really interesting question to ask. So, I think there's again. This is this is one of these classic ones that you split into a couple of different component parts, and there's there's pretty much like a spectrum of application development. So one one of the things that we tend to see with every technology wave, we tend to see a bit of an over rotation from everything. And everything goes, everything's going to be containers, everything's going to be servers, etc. And whenever anyone says that to me, I always point out, well, you know, like IBM just had a, a huge quarter on the basis of selling mainframes. You know, main, like things don't go away. There's a long tail of technology inside an enterprise that's absolutely huge. That's not going to disappear because of because of new technologies emerging. Now, when we look at kind of this this intersection, part of the promise of what Kubernetes is giving you is a layer of application portability. And that's one of the things that, from developers and from businesses' perspective, is really, really interesting. So if you get the same kind of thing in terms of being able to use a framework sitting on top of Kubernetes, which gives you that underlying application portability on one, on one level in terms of I can use this framework on any Kubernetes implementation that's out there, and then I can shift my serverless applications around the place, that becomes a really interesting dynamic in terms of how you approach and how you, how you make your technology decisions. And you know, you're no longer in a situation where you kind of go, if I want to use this, I'm going to have to use one specific provider and nothing else. It's, your question now becomes, okay, I'm going to use... I'm going to use this underlying Kubernetes infrastructure, I'm going to layer the serverless thing on top of it, and then I can move it around to where I want. I can keep it on premises. I can move it, move it into one of the cloud providers. I can do whatever, whatever I really want with it. And that's that's kind of where where we view that part of the intersection. The other part then is kind of the the set of applications that are suitable for serverless versus the set of applications that are suitable for other areas and for other other types of approaches. And there's there's definitely kind of some distinctions, you know, like just things, if you've got any sort of reasonably long-running process, you probably don't want to be looking at serverless for that. Um, like you can push things where you can get things to run for 10 minutes, but you need to ask yourself the question of what, what are you actually writing if you're pushing it for 10 minutes? Um, there's also, 
there's questions of things like, okay, well, do I need special types of affinity to locations and that kind of stuff? That's not guaranteed with serverless. It is guaranteed with where I can do positioning in with with like an, an orchestrator stuff like that. So there's there's a whole bunch of, of these kind of considerations that are there. But I think to kind of sum it up, there's basically a spectrum of compute and containers and serverless are going to fill a very, very big chunk of it together. And I think we will see a lot of people combining them together and use using different areas for different parts of their application. We've been talking predominantly about serverless. I guess I would say a functional perspective. There's also this pricing element, and it seems as if, well, for our listeners, you pay for something like Lambda, you know, a very small amount to very quickly execute and exit a function, and you, one of the mantras in serverless, at least in the public cloud, is you don't pay for idle time, which you do, even though containers can be spun up and down quickly, there's still this element of containers don't go away until you tell them to shut down, which is not the case with serverless. And as a result, there is at least a school of thought that serverless only makes sense, you know, in a public cloud where you get that pricing model. What, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think it, it depends very much on the profile of what you're actually trying to do and what, what your requirements are. The, the question that you need to ask yourself is, what am I really trying to accomplish? And what's the kind of like things like the scalability requirements and stuff like that that I actually have? And for a lot of applications, you don't need it to be that large. And then you kind of switch your question around of, okay, do I, do I actually want to focus on the developer productivity part of it or do I want to focus on exclusively a cost-saving aspect? I think in the conversations we have, we very we very rarely come across people that are considering about considering serverless solely on a cost perspective. Um, it is definitely a consideration, but it's not it's not the biggest consideration. It's that velocity thing is what they're really really interested in. Now, that said, there is definitely a cost point where bec- where there's there's a tipping point as to serverless no longer actually being that expensive, and that's not related to the execution of the Lambda function in and of itself. That's cheap across all the providers. It's when you start tying in something like the API gateway calls on on AWS, or you're looking at you're looking at all the other ancillary services that you need to use around things. Like you're not going to use you're not going to use a whole serverless paradigm and not use a managed database service. So there's going to be a cost associated with that. If you want to use it for for processing data that's arriving into into storage, you've got your cloud storage costs, etc. And all, all of these things add up quite quickly. So I think we haven't fully understood the model of pricing for serverless yet. And it gets a little bit lost in the conversation of you, you only pay for the execution time of the function rather than considering all the ancillary things you have around it. Finn, you're an analyst, and analysts are these great seers predicting the future. At least that's what I always claimed when I was an analyst. Where do you see this going? I mean, one of the hallmarks of this whole space is how rapidly things are changing. But so I know it's hard. But where do you think? Where do you think things will go over the next few years? Well, I'd, I'd love to be able to predict it accurately, but but I'll, but I'll make a I'll make a guess. Um, there's, so there's a couple of things. I think the the big consideration that I keep coming back to in all of these all of these things that I'm talking about is not about the infrastructure. It's about the developer velocity, which ultimately translates into the business velocity of how things are done. And the demand, the bigger demand that actually exists, is how do how do businesses transform themselves and actually just move faster? And what do they need to do that? So I think all of these emerging trends, they all actually tie back to kind of an underlying 
burning desire, I guess, inside in companies to, to just be able to react to things quicker. So I think what, what we will see emerging is we'll see a set of best practices emerging in terms of how to use use these technologies, how to incorporate them into your business, and how to, how to rapidly iterate and actually turn product cycles around to a different... A, a whole different velocity to what we currently have. Now, that actually has bigger implications across the wider businesses rather than just the technology organizations. So there's there's a lot of a lot of things that need to be considered there in terms of wider change management, how you're going to do things, all that kind of stuff. So that's one side of it. Now, on the sheer, just pure technology side, the other the other part that we see, there will definitely be a migration of kind of the greenfield type applications into these containerized environments, into serverless environments, and I think that's where we'll see the biggest focus for a lot of these things. And we're seeing some some really interesting emerging trends. So if you look at something like um, AI models and how they're being generated and then how they're being consumed, we're starting to see things where people are going off doing a lot of a lot of serious training of their models, like using an awful lot of GPUs and computation things. Once they have a trained model, then they're able to stick the model into a serverless function and just do the inference at that point. And that changes the cost dynamics of using all of these things into in all sorts of massive ways. But it also changes how quickly you can make updated and changed models available to end users and stuff. So there's a whole set of dynamics that we'll see emerging there as well. The final one that's a really interesting thing to tie into all of this is what's happening on the edge and what's happening with IoT devices and those kind of areas. It's a couple of things. So we Amazon released Greengrass a number of years ago, which has definitely seen some traction and is starting to grow. So there's a, there's a question about this event-driven model and how edge computing is going to impact all this and and vice versa like when i was just talking about like train models and things there's a question of can you bring the train models to the edge and run your inference there without ever going back to your cloud or to your data providers etc and that's there's a whole there's a whole shift that's potentially going to happen in those areas as well as to you know what devices we consider to be on the edge versus what to what do we consider to be in a data center and what are our actual needs and requirements for them and also how do we manage all of these kind of things as well you mentioned developers, and obviously Red Monk is very focused in developers. Your colleague Stephen O'Grady wrote the new Kingmakers. If you haven't read it, you should. One of the interesting aspects I find with serverless, with a lot of these new AI languages, serve a lot of these yeah, new, essentially, resources out there, is, is we talk about developers, and I think we have this image of someone who got a CS degree and knows how to program and all kinds of languages, and is really a full-time expert in this kind of stuff. But really, one of the things that we see here, which you know, arguably started with AWS, is that increasingly domain experts, business analysts and the like, who are at least re- moderately co- competent in a language like Python, maybe, they're actually developers now. Yep, that's that's definitely happening. I think there, there's two classes to the, those kind of people as well. So I think that there are people who have um, a level of a level of programming and they're able to, to program certain things. And they're, they're very focused on a, on a specific problem set. And they may not necessarily be following all the kind of best practices, etc., but they are definitely trying to do that kind of thing. There is another set of, of folks, which I think, like, kind of some people refer to them as like the citizen developers, etc., which I think they, they don't quite fit into using these technologies as of yet, but they may become consumers of them. But yeah, we def, like, we're definitely seeing that kind of shift. And what's, what's really interesting is to look at, so like you mentioned, Python, they, 
the amount of Python usage that we're seeing in the data science communities and coming out and people coming out of say like um, even like social science degrees and stuff like that it's it's completely different to where we were a number of years ago like it's becoming the language that everyone is playing around with that, that's coming out of university with these things I mean, certainly the the on-ramp for a lot of these things, you know, Python, you, know, you mentioned Python, yes, Python's a full computer language and there's very sophisticated uh, software that's written in it, but it certainly isn't as hard to learn and use as, say, C is. No, it definitely isn't. And um, actually, when we're speaking of on-ramps, one of the other really interesting on-ramps is, like, among the things we've been tracking recently is the rise of Jupyter Notebooks and how they're being used. And people, like, generally do everything in Python inside there. That's a really easy entry point because it takes away some of the heavy lifting in terms of setting up your environment, etc., um, and makes it just easy for you to actually play around with focusing on the business experiment that you're trying to do or the data experiment you're trying to do. So that's, yeah, it's it's definitely really interesting to see this kind of shift that we're seeing. And in, in some ways, it's not new. I mean, after all, there are some awfully complex Excel macros out there, but nobody really thought of Excel as a programming language, whereas these things just look a lot more like traditional programming languages. Yeah, absolutely. There definitely is that. And there's definitely, it's a question of like what's, what's your interface and what are you actually thinking about? There's, there's actually a really, really interesting um, podcast a couple of weeks ago with um, Stephen Snosky and Benedict Evans at Andreessen Horowitz where they were talking about they were talking about like the shift in consumption devices and what you actually need what you what people are going to use but saying like, one of the biggest reasons why we all had desktops is because people were actually doing were programming in Excel and as this model changes do does our consumption device change as well which is a really interesting kind of question I think but but to, to your original question yeah Things like Excel, etc., were definitely what people were using before, and now people are definitely moving on to using, I said, like using things like Jupyter and and that kind of stuff just to play around with with data and build build out the, it's just the queries that they're trying to run. Well, thank you. Anything else you'd like to add? No, thank you very much for having us on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cloudy Chat podcast. For future episodes, subscribe to Cloudy Chat on your favorite podcast reader. You can also go to bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, dot blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of podcast episodes. Thank you. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist with Red Hat.